0: al haal al haal wa laa yaa
1: Welcome to the Bruce Siski Show. Follow the Bruce Siski Show on Twitter to interact anytime. Got something on your mind? You can text Bruce during the show by using the short code 84454. You're listening to the Bruce Siski Show on 610 and FM 103.9 KDAL.
2: It is 10-12 on this Tuesday morning, 12th day of September, 2023. Bruce Siski Show on KDAL. We'll talk some Bulldog football coming up about 25 minutes or so from now as we'll uh, chat with the defensive coordinator Trey Dill ahead of Military Appreciation Weekend on the UMD campus, Bulldogs and the University of Sioux Falls on Saturday afternoon, 2 o'clock. Start 1.30 for the pregame here on KDAL. First up, uh, we are honored to be joined by author Tim Hornbaker. His book is called The Last Real World Champion, the biography of the nature boy, Ric Flair. It is out today. Tim, good morning, sir.
0: Good morning, Bruce. Thank you
2: for having me. Thank you for doing this. Uh, congratulations on this book release. Uh, you know, this is going to be a really dumb question, but I know there's a lot of people out there listening that probably aren't big wrestling fans. So I'm going to ask it What inspired you to write a book about the, the, the life and the history of the Nature Boy Ric Flair?
0: Well, I think Ric Flair is, is definitely one of the all-time great professional wrestlers. And as a wrestling historian, I kind of wanted to dive into his, his past and to add to there are documentaries and books out on, on him that are out there, and I kind of wanted to dive into his story and kind of clear up some misconceptions and then add to a historical perspective and give readers, uh, fans and even non-fans, a, a, a really good look a deep perspective on his life and career.
2: This is a, a career, by the way, that began some fifty years ago, more than fifty years ago, and it began not too far from where we are here in Duluth, Minnesota. But what's interesting, Tim, is you know, you think about you know the great actors, you can you can tell their first credit. You know, what's what's the first thing they starred in, that type of thing. Ric Flair's professional wrestling debut is a bit of a mystery, isn't it?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was one of those things where historians and writers of the day had had a date in mind. They said it was December 10th, 1972, and they said it happened in Wisconsin somewhere. And basically, as I was digging into this and researching, and Flair himself had said that that's when he made his pro debut. So I actually went into the records, was trying to search to find out where it actually happened, And I came up pretty much empty-handed in terms of trying to find a specific date. But it it is around there, and it either happened in Wisconsin or Minnesota. And it could have been happened near where you are, uh, up in the Duluth area. We just don't know for sure where it happened, but it, it is one of those mysteries that will remain.
2: Uh, Ric Flair, as he got in, into professional wrestling, his start was in the AWA, Vern Gagne's territory that ran out of Minnesota. What, what can you tell us and share about Ric Flair's time in the AWA?
0: Well, absolutely. Vern Gagne's AWA was, was where uh, uh, Rick Flair got his his training, and he went through Vern Gagne's official training camp there uh, in near the Twin Cities and uh, and made his pro debut and entered the business as a rookie in the AWA and, uh, in that upper Midwest territory. Um, Flair was uh, a larger man, I'll say. He wasn't like you in him in his heyday. He was north of 250 pounds. He was more of a uh, a bulky uh, bodybuilder type, but he definitely learned the ropes there, wrestling with some of the greats, Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens. He learned from these guys and built a tour that would uh, help him as he
3: developed his career.
2: We're talking to Tim Hornbaker, the last real-world champion. The biography of the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, is available today wherever you get your books. So one of the things I thought was interesting, because I, I will be honest, I'm a wrestling fan. I have been since I was a kid. It's only been in the last three or four years that I've gotten a little more into the history of the business and trying to understand you know, the, the way things worked back in the 60s and 70s and even before that. And so I was unaware of this until actually I read your book that you know Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, was a big influence on Ric Flair's wrestling gimmick. I, I guess I didn't make the connection at any point, but you've got a story in the book that I thought was really interesting that Ric Flair wanted to be almost an in-ring brother to Dusty Rhodes at one point.
0: Absolutely. Dusty Rhodes had a tremendous influence on Ric Flair. I mean, I don't think a lot of people do realize that that uh, when Flair was breaking into the business in the AWA that Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch, the Texas outlaws, were one of the top uh, bad guy tag teams of the era. And Ric Flair was uh, one of the – he wanted to be one of them. He wanted to hang out with them. He wanted to – dressed like them, wear the cowboy hats and the cowboy boots. And yeah, his initial idea was to actually be rambling Ricky Rhodes, uh, a, a, a brother of Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Bern Gagne and Dusty Rhodes, though, disagreed with that idea and wanted him to go on his own path. But Flair was definitely influenced by Dusty Rhodes. There's no
2: question about it. Now, I am uh, one of the things I enjoy, whether it be sports or, or even wrestling sometimes, I think about the what ifs. This one fascinates me because I think Ric Flair was talented enough that Ric Flair could have, you know, he could have portrayed a car salesman and made it a really interesting wrestling character. But it makes me wonder the arc of the business, how influential Ric Flair the nature boy was if instead of being Ric Flair, he'd been rambling Ricky Rhodes.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think it would have changed things, but I think Flair had the innate ability and the talent to make that work. Had he gone in that direction, or if he would have gone and you know, like you said, Bruce, had he gone and done any gimmick that he wanted, insurance salesman, he could have done anything and made it into a wrestling character and and perfected it and sold it to the
4: public.
2: Obviously, as he's coming into the business, he is up you know up there working with guys that are much more experienced. him. how did Ric Flair? you know acquit himself with these more experienced these tougher competitors the Greg Gagne's of the world as he's coming up
0: I think he just gritted it out I think he just was in there night after night after night putting in the time and the experience and I think guys like uh Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel some of these guys who were really tough as nails characters really kind of put flair through the gave him the business I would say in the ring and made him sharpen his skills to the point where he could go in the ring with anyone of, of, of greater skill, lesser skill, and, and put on a good match.
2: Tim Hornbaker, our guest, we are talking about the book The Last Real World Champion, the biography of Ric Flair. Tell me about Ric Flair driving around and traveling around and partying with Andre the Giant.
0: Yes, uh, in his early days, Flair was, uh, actually took on the role of Andre the Giant's driver for a while, and there's a uh, fame story about them. Uh, cruising into the Windy City in Chicago and and, and, and enjoying the nightlife. Uh, I believe it was Rush Street that they were on, enjoying uh, cocktails. And, and, you know, Andre the Giant with his legendary stories of drinking, you could only imagine uh, a young Ric Flair, the nature boy, before he actually was the nature boy, hanging out with the larger-than-life Honor of the Giants. So it probably was an amazing sight to behold.
2: Tim, you've got another book on, on the history of wrestling called Death of the Territories, and it, and it goes into a lot of detail on the way things used to be in pro wrestling, where the AWA was kind of that upper Midwest territory, but there were these territories all over the country. How did Ric Flair end up leaving the AWA?
0: I think he had put in his time in the AWA, and he wasn't seeing a career progression that he would have liked. I think Bern Gagne was kind of a guy who wanted to keep you in place for a while before building you up and putting you in a a better spot. And he actually had such a uh, a wonderful cast of of, of wrestlers at the time. So I think Flair felt that he needed to go outside the AWA to have career progression. He went to the Mid-Atlantic region and base out of Charlotte, where he did receive the new opportunities and saw his career flourish.
2: We're talking to Tim Hornbaker on the last real world champion, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. So as he he heads to the south and and he begins working down there, eventually, of course, he does develop this Nature Boy gimmick, but it wasn't necessarily an original production, right?
0: No, absolutely not. Uh, George Scott, the the matchmaker in Charlotte, actually uh, wanted a pattern flair after the original Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers. Buddy Rogers was another blonde hair, uh, cool, villainous type of the wrestling ring. And uh, George Scott, I I, I have to presume that he saw the same image for Flair, and Flair picked up that ball, ran with it, and made it his own, for sure.
3: How
2: did uh, Ric Flair, how did that help him over the course of his career to be able to work like he did as long as he did with Wahoo McDaniel?
0: Wow. Wahoo McDaniel was, uh, I would say, one of the tremendous influences on flair's career Wahoo mcdaniel was was extremely durable and tough with his football background uh... i think flair just came under wahoo's uh, wing at at the time and learned so much from him about uh... conditioning and just uh, a, a style of wrestling that he, he probably didn't deal with beforehand to any extent so wahoo had a tremendous influence on flair and flair took that and and carried it the rest of his career
2: when flair adopted the nature boy persona did that take off right away
0: um i would say i think flair already had a kind of a following there in the mid-atlantic region and i would say that once he kind of morphed into the nature boy and and made that his own i think fans were responding to him in a big way so i think it was a a thing that was happening prior to it and then once he stepped into that role and kind of, you know, proclaimed that he was a nature boy and he was, you know, making these grandiose statements, I think that it just took off from there. Uh, but, yeah, it definitely, he had the momentum going his way at that time.
2: Uh, Tim, uh, you know, we we talked about, you know, Wahoo McDaniel. The rivalry that Flair and Wahoo had in the ring, th- it lasted a long time. Uh, do you think that that was kind of the moment where, People maybe outside the territory began to take notice of of what they had in Ric Flair.
0: I think that I think it's definitely an important factor because you you gauge a wrestler from a promoter or a matchmaker point of view. You look at wrestlers to see if they're they have the the durability and the strength and the conditioning and and the the will to to be a, a top professional wrestler. And Flair had the natural gift. I would say personality-wise. He had the charisma. So from a promoter's point of view, you want to look at him and see, does he have the internal grit to be able to go across the country and even across the world and wrestle different uh, opponents of different sizes and, uh, and ability and to um, you know, see if he can, he can manage that? And Wahoo, I think, put him through these insane trials to challenge him And Flair survived those challenges, and and look what he was able to do.
2: I think the first time I remember at least seeing Ric Flair wrestle was probably late 80s-ish on the old TBS, the Saturday Night TBS uh, Superstation show that I happened to stumble on at some point at Grandma's house because she had cable and we didn't at my house. And I remember it had been, I don't know, it had been Jim Ross or somebody else, but whoever was calling the match talked about he got hit in the back at some point or he did a back bump, one or the other, and they talked about the plane crash. I knew nothing at the time of the plane crash, 1975, but this was a plane crash that almost took Ric Flair from us.
0: It did. It did. It, it was a devastating crash. There was six people aboard. It was flying uh, to Wilmington for a show in North Carolina. And uh, the pilot, uh, I guess he didn't compensate for the the overload and weight between the wrestlers and their baggage, and uh, the fuel. And essentially, the plane r- ran out of fuel. Heading, they were almost to the airport. They could see it. They ran out of fuel and and hit a an embutment. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of serious uh, injuries. Johnny Valentine's career was ended. Ric Flair actually suffered a broken back in the uh, the the uh, plane crash. And doctors told him that he would never wrestle again. And I attribute this to his conditioning and his, his mental strength and his uh, his love of professional wrestling. But Flair not only bounced back but became a, a wrestling legend.
2: These puddle jumper planes were pretty common in, in the territory days. And, and one of the podcasts I listen to now with Jim Cornette and, and Brian Last, they've told this story, and I think that it might have referenced it when they had you on here recently on their podcast, 1978. Eight-ish, I think it was. Flair got double booked for a show in. He was in North Carolina, did like an eight o'clock, like a opening match, and then he flew to Tampa and got to the ring in time for the main event. What do you know about that?
0: Yeah, that's just one of the most uh, surprising stories. But again, it shows Flair's dedication to the business that he was actually double booked on a day and a day and an evening, and he had to appear in North Carolina, jump on the plane, like you said. I mean, he literally put him on early on in the program to get him out of there. Usually a main event star would wrestle the last uh, match of the show, but they got him on early knowing that he had to make a quick flight to Tampa. And then, of course, they on the other end, they had him on as late as possible, keeping the fans around, you know, extending matches. Flair gets to the airport. They get him into a car, get him to the arena. He goes on, probably wrestles a, a 30-minute match. But he, you know, it shows his drive, conditioning, and love for the business.
2: Uh, Tim, I don't know about you, but if I'd have been involved in a small plane crash in 1975, you would not have flown me anywhere in 1978. That would have been the end of me flying. Yeah. I- <laughs> I agree, Bruce, for sure. Yeah,
0: that's – you know, seriously, for Flair, he's just a survivor, and I don't even think he thought twice about it. He loved the business and just kept going.
2: We're talking to Tim Hornbaker, the last real-world champion. The biography of Ric Flair is now out now. i got a couple of more here. Uh, Something else that you've referenced uh, via Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now, is that when Ric Flair was the NWA world heavyweight champion and he was flying all over the place to make dates – you referenced that at one point, that guy flew 33,000 miles in a month?
0: Yes. that was Wow. Incredible, yeah, that was an incredible journey that he was on. I mean, he was wrestling night after night after night as the NWA world champion, appearing in cities large and small, sometimes going into places like uh, Hayes, Kansas, and Hutchinson, Kansas. Where, you know, there's There's not that many people, I'll say. But then also, heading into Charlotte before you know, 10,000 people, and uh, then flying overseas to Tokyo. So, yes, in one uh, stretch of time, he was wrestling every single night, making TV dates, and going to to Japan, and he wrestled uh, approximately 30... He he traveled approximately 33,000 miles in in a month's time. So, yeah, it was an astonishing find to learn that, but, again, it just how uh, dedicated Flair was to the
2: business. Uh, Rick Flair eventually would leave, uh, would leave. Would Of course, he would join WCW, World Championship Wrestling, as, as the territories all kind of died off and wrestling became this kind of national bit. He got into dispute with them, left for the WWF. He took the World Championship with him at one point. He was the real world's champion with the WCW belt on WWF television, which was just jarring to see at the time. But then he ends up back in WCW, Tim, and it, it felt like like that's kind of where he belonged all along
0: i, I agree 100 percent i mean wcw was his home it was the lineage of the old jim crockett promotions and the nwa wcw uh you know seeing him in the wwf was nice i mean you know he sh- he shined there he won the title two times he wrestled at wrestlemania but getting him back to wcw and starrcade and some of those big events and back in the ring with sting and ricky steamboat that was where he needed to be, and I think he knew that as well. So his homecoming was definitely a big event for fans at the time and uh, finally remembered to this day.
2: Would you say, and i only got time for a couple more here, Tim, but would you say that that of, of all the rivalries he had, maybe the most consistently good matches he had came with Ricky Steamboat?
0: It, it has to be. Steamboat, you know, they were wrestling in the 70s. I mean, they really they got to know each other there where they, they didn't have to – Pre-script a match beforehand. They could go in the ring and battle each other and wrestle these these intense classics. And when they uh, they continued their rivalry in the 80s and then 1989, they had this tremendous series, uh, uh, three matches that uh, were legendary. And then even uh, up until 1994, they were wrestling great matches. So I have to say that yes, uh, without a, without a doubt, Flair uh, and Steamboat had the most chemistry in the ring that I've ever seen. And, uh, yeah, they were, they were legendary
2: matches. Finally, Tim, what would you say is the legacy of Ric Flair? That's
0: a great cre- question, uh, Bruce. Uh, you know, throughout writing this bu- book, I-, I had a lot of time to reflect on that and to put him into perspective. Without question, the Nature Boy Ric Flair is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Uh, he-, he performed well in the ring. He did interviews. I mean, living up to the standards that uh, Luthez and some of the greats of the past had put forth But then he he kind of rose above that as a dedicated uh, wrestler and champion. And by touring the world and and wrestling uh, many different types of styles and and against many different types of competitors, he just established himself uh, firmly as a Hall of Fame wrestler And his legacy will will never change or deviate from that because of what he he was able to
2: accomplish. The research in this book is is impeccable. It's incredible. Tim, congratulations on this project. I know you're going to be taking some time away from writing. This is a great way to go out, at least for the time being. I really appreciate the time, and best of luck with this book.
0: Thank you, Bruce. I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure to be with you. Thank Thank you. you very much.
2: Thank you. Tim Hornbaker, the author of The Last Real World Champion, The Legacy, The Life, The Times of the Nature Boy Ric Flair. If you've got a wrestling fan anywhere in your purview, this one's worth it. It is really, really well done. 1031, we're running late. More to come on KDAL. This
3: is the Golden Gopher Daily Update. I'm Mike Grimm. The University of Minnesota football team will visit number 18 North Carolina this Saturday afternoon in a battle of two teams with 2-0 records. We'll hear from Minnesota head coach P.J. Fleck next.
1: During the month of September, the Gophers and Cub are teaming up for a program called Cub Kindness. This vendor-supported promotion helps to raise dollars for the Gopher Row the Boat Fund at Masonic Children's Hospital. Please consider donating at the register during this time. And while at Cub, pick up your favorite General Mills, Nestle, Kellogg's, and Unilever products. Cub, proud sponsor and official grocer of Gopher Athletics.
3: The Golden Gopher defense has allowed only one touchdown in two games and did not allow a first down in the second half of last week's victory over Eastern Michigan. The quality of opposition goes up with the host Tar Heels this weekend. They have quarterback Drake May, who many have as the top signal caller in the country and a likely early first-round NFL draft pick. Minnesota head coach P.J. Fleck on May. He's as advertised. He's smooth now. Nothing rattles him. He's a great runner. He's a great athlete. He's very accurate. He can do it all
0: that's why probably he's a number one quarterback being taken in the draft they say and coming up I've only studied him one night right a little bit in the offseason but you talk about a really good player they build the whole scheme around him. they got a really good running game which is really helping him as well so they're very balanced on offense uh, they're very disciplined on defense, but you know we've got a tall task going against that type of quarterback, and rightfully so. He seems like a wonderful person, according to Mac, and In the interviews I've watched, I wouldn't expect anything less, but very, very talented in the way he plays the game.
3: Saturday's game kicks off at 2.30. We'll take air at 12.30 on many of these Gopher radio network stations. For more info on the game, go to gophersports.com. That's the Golden Gopher Daily Update. I'm Mike Grimm. The Bruce
1: Siskey Show. If
0: you're allergic to waffles, don't eat waffles. Then don't take me to a Waffle House.
3: On
1: 610
2: and FM 103.9 KDAO. 10.36, our Tom, we are running the way late. UMD defensive coordinator, Trey Dill. We'll talk some Bulldog football with him. Off a 2-0 start, they prepare to take on Sioux Falls this weekend at Miloski Stadium. The lowdown from the defensive coordinator after a CBS News update. Bruce Siski show continues on KDAL.
1: The Bruce Siski show. Kidding me. God.
0: You say radon is silent but deadly, and then you expect me not to make farting noises with my mouth? What is this? Sit down. You know what? We're not going to die of radon. We're going to die of boredom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on 610
1: and FM 103.9, KDAL. 1041.
2: Tuesday morning. Still raining outside, which is about the last thing we need as they continue to clean up on Superior Street here at 1st Avenue East. Again, that is closed at the moment. They're hoping to have it open before the end of the day. No show tomorrow. Early Twins means early Brad at 10 o'clock. I will be in St. Paul tomorrow at NCHC Media Day, and we'll play back the first of those conversations on Friday's radio show. On Thursday, we are back. With UMV Volleyball Assistant Coach Kristen May, we'll talk up North preseason tournament, look ahead to Mary and Minot State this weekend to kick off the NSIC schedule. And UMV football safety Tim Polkernowski, if he has caught his breath yet after that 92-yard interception return that set up a touchdown in Saturday's win against Northern State. Joining us now, his defensive coordinator, Trey Dill. Good morning, sir. Good
4: morning, Bruce. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing well, excellent. Doing well. Just has, has ready Tim,
2: here for practice. Has Tim caught his breath yet? By the way,
4: I believe so. Okay, he, he looked he looked good on Sunday. He looked good on Sunday, so he's he's all ready to run.
2: Because I, I would I would have been in the hospital, so I'm just asking. I'm just curious. <laughs> I, it's, I, that was though, uh, and I didn't get a look at the at the replay if they showed it on the on the the video web stream whatever. That would look like a heck of a read by him.
4: Oh, it was a, it was a good. It was a um, we're playing our our reds our kind of our base red zone coverage and it's uh, really lets our safeties because of the field spacing play a little bit lower and play a little bit more off the quarterback and um, he didn't chase the in route that they tried to sucker him in there with and stayed patient and disciplined like you'd expect him to and um, you know he, he the maybe his baseball skills took over from there and was able to get some hands on it and, and break so um, it was awesome to see him. You know, it's it's you know, those guys, those two safeties back there made some big plays in that game, but um Tim did a great job and switched was a little bit faster. That's guy, it all the way home. But. I was gonna
2: say, did he get some guff afterward for getting caught from behind by the quarterback?
4: Oh yeah, for sure he did. For sure
2: he Because <laughs> that that's gotta be that's gotta be like getting tackled by the kicker when you're running back a kick, right? That that's that's fine worthy, I would think.
4: Yeah, it's it's close. Uh you know, you, I think we we talked about you know, first all time. I think, I think Coach Weezy brought it up. Tim's probably got the longest non-touchdown interception return in <laughs> school history. So he, he he can put that down for uh, his hey, record book. I oh.
2: see a, a record's a record, right?
4: <laughs> correct,
2: yeah. correct. We're talking to you, and the defensive coordinator trade deal. What have you thought of the uh, of your defense's play here through a couple of games?
4: Um, you know, I I think we've had uh we've been able to make some plays. Um, you know, we had. The two interceptions last night. We had two, or this past weekend, we had two interceptions. Opening game, um, we had a, we really had another interception called back on a on a late hit on the quarterback. I think um, we've been able to make some plays in the back end. Uh, you know, you know, the, probably the done a good job in the run game. Um, probably the one concern is just started a little bit on third down, you know, get herself off the field. And um, but I think the guys are playing hard. They've they've shown a lot of. Maturity when it comes to you know surviving negative plays um, and surviving penalties or just misfortunes. Um, They give Northern credit in that game. They made a lot of plays on offense, catching the football and um, on a couple very tight windows. And um, guys kind of just rolled off and played the next play and were able to you know turn around and make some plays on the on this, after those negative things happened.
2: This the sample size here is incredibly small. You know, over the course of a season of a third down defense struggles a lot of times it's not just one thing. Is that is that the case here early on that that it's maybe more than one thing that that may be kind of biting you on third downs?
4: Yeah, yeah, you know, I think there's uh there's probably some times where you know more teams are probably playing the, the analytics and run the football a little bit more. We've had some some draws and screens and some just some base run plays on longer third downs that you're you know traditionally not expecting. So I like think it's it's relooking maybe at how we're evaluating third down, um, playing maybe some base defensive calls too um, instead of getting real exotic. Um, and and you know we we've, we've played some good you know some really good outs. and I think. Um, the Northern guys create some issues where they're getting out, and you're forced to play some concepts of double coverage on on their two good wideouts. And the quarterback was able to, you know, avoid a couple sacks. He, he we got him a bunch of times, but you know, when we missed, he was a good athlete, got out. And then, you know, the guy from Northern Michigan, I think, was a was an upper tier quarterback in our league, and was a guy that would stand in there and make some throws, but. Um, there there's there there are some things we gotta get corrected, but you know, it is it is a small sample size and um make it a thing our guys understand. They know the importance of it and um I I look forward to, you know, us competing a little bit better here this week.
2: What have you thought of your pass rush so far? I know Drew Hennessy got home for a big sack on Saturday against a pretty good northern state quarterback.
4: Yeah, it was good. We gotta we gotta work on uh we got we got some stat discrepancies. I think we looked at it, I think we ended up with like ten sacks on the day but they were counting some sacks as as just negative runs so uh, we're working through uh some some sports information to try to see if we can work with northern to get some of those adjusted but um no the guys they they were challenged they were going to throw the football a lot and um we were able to affect the quarterback we just um got to get them down all the time but no, those guys have um the guys up front i think we talked um, a little bit this summer just our depth up there is you know, those guys have we've been able to put a lot of different bodies and rush a quarterback and stay fresh, and that's, you know, the goal um, with being a good pass rush team is just having fresh legs, be able to go after the quarterback that many times.
2: What uh, what do you think with Sioux Falls here this week, some challenges? It looks like they've got a pretty multifaceted offense. Is this a – you know, I know they got the a coach from Mankato here over the offseason. Is this a, a Mankato-esque mm-hmm. offense, or are they doing something a little different?
4: Um, I think at the core philosophy, yes, they want to run the football um, and they want to play with tight ends on the field. Um, I would say schematically they're they're different in how they get to it, but uh, what they want to do is the same kind of concepts. And um, I think they, they their, their offense is is based out of uh, some good perimeter and interior run game. Um, they're gonna they're gonna try to come off the ball. They got uh, good tight ends. I think it's a probably as good of a group of tight ends that we've seen so far um and that we'll see there's some other teams in our league maybe later in our schedule but they got a good group of tight ends um they're young at a lot of other positions um but um i think they do a good job as a staff to try to you know if they, if they don't feel they're great with their uh, collectively drop back throwing the football they're not going to drop back and throw it very much they're going to use play action they're going to use they're going to get the quarterback moving um they've got two good quarterbacks to um you know, Adam Mullen started for him last year, um, and then Camden uh, Dean came over from Mankato. Um, both those guys have played, and um, both those guys have won games in our league. So they're both pretty tough competitors back there. And I think any time you have a tough competitor at quarterback, you, you give yourself a chance
2: talking to you I'm the defensive coordinator trey dill about a minute left here i'll give it to you with uh, military appreciation i know this is an event that is uh, it's become a cornerstone for the football program from coach uh, kurt Weezy all the way down you guys take a lot of pride in this you've got a great uh, guest speaker lined up for your football team this week now, how much do you guys uh, as a group look forward to military appreciation week
4: i think we, we we circle it every year no matter who we're playing i think we look at it as another homecoming opportunity it's a chance for alums to be back. I think for our guys to kind of be put, be showcased um, to those guys. Um, You know, when we have our golf outings, everybody talks about it and um, you know, it is a, it is a bigger event. Um, You know, it's obviously it's another game, but um, there's a little bit more juice and the guys feel that. And um, you know, it's exciting. You know, I, we look forward to whoever we're going to play and obviously playing a team like Sioux Falls adds a little bit more energy and, um, atmosphere to it as well with their success that they've
2: had. And uh, always a great time at Molaski Stadium. 2 o'clock kickoff. Tailgate lots open at 11. Fundraiser once again the, for Operation One Voice. I know that means a lot to you guys and we're hoping to, to raise a lot of money here once again this week. Thanks for the time. Good luck this week against the Cougars.
4: Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate it. I
2: appreciate it. Trade Dale, defensive coordinator, UMD football team. Jeff's got the call if you can't make it out Saturday. But if you can make it out Saturday, go to UMDBulldogs.com. They've got all the information on Military Appreciation Weekend, including your tickets there. But uh, also you can find out more about Operation One Voice and what they'll be doing to raise funds for Operation One Voice on Saturday afternoon. We'll have the call 1.30 pregame. Here on KDAL. 1050. Wrap it up in a moment. Rusiski show on KDAL.
1: Your Twin Ports home for Gopher football. Zone Touchdown, Golden Gopher's KDAL. KDAL
2: 1059. Get the podcast up for you guys. Tim Hornbaker was great. Nice conversation with Trade Dale as well. Get that uh, posted for you at KDAL610.com. No show tomorrow. Early Twins, Early Brad. I'll be in St. Paul for NCHC Media Day. 12 interviews to tape. We'll get those uh, started up on Friday, and we're back in studio on Thursday. Brad and Kenny up next to sound off. Have a great Tuesday.
1: This has been the Bruce Siski Show. Hit us up on Twitter at Bruce Siski Show and let us know what you think. No. Yes. No. Well.